Welcome to The Sound of the Hound. Series 2. The podcast about the early days of recorded sound. In it, we talk about the recording pioneers and artists who created the modern music industry over 100 years ago. We look at the sometimes ridiculous lengths they went to to capture sound and the technology they used in order to do it. We come from the point of view of spirited amateurs. Yes, we're very much armchair enthusiasts. And we play a little scratchy music along the way. This podcast comes to you with the support of the EMI Archive Trust, the Music and Technology Archive. This is The Sound of the Hound. Welcome to this week's episode of The Sound of the Hound. It's Dave Holly And it's James Hall. And this episode is continuance of Fred Geisberg's adventures in the Far East. Now, he's been, as we found out in the last episode, he's been in India... It's 1902. At the end of the year, he decides to head further east that he goes to China, Japan, Hong Kong, Burma, Burma, Singapore, Bangkok. Yes, all of those places. (laughs) Which sounds like a great trip now, but 117 years ago obviously came with a few more challenges and a lot more uh, time needed to do it. So um, Christmas 1902, he boards a P&O ship called the Shusan, from India towards China. And his aim, he says, the plan is to get to the most remote point and work gradually back from there. So basically, he's going to the end of the world and then kind of coming back. Yeah, and the the end of the world is Japan. So he starts furthest away and then works back. But first of all, he's got to get there. So it's interesting, yeah, he leaves December 1902 and he has Christmas on board the boat, I think. And he's it's him... It's George Dilnert, his who assistant. is his assistant. Yep. And then it's, it's the mysterious Mr. and Mrs. Tom Addis, who, who Tom Addis was the business guy who'd come to India to help um, set up the um, gramophone company's businesses over there, and in fact returns after this trip and takes over running India. But him and his wife follow him, follow um, Fred on this trip, which is his, his rather attractive wife, if I remember Fred's earlier. Well, Fred pointed that out, yes. yeah. Yeah, it's P&O Cruiser, the Shuzan. But Fred, Fred, it's quite a long time. I mean, half the journey takes months to get, get to. He leaves in, in December, and they arrive in Japan in February, so they've got a couple of months. They go via what they would have called Ceylon, what we call Sri Lanka. They get there just before Christmas, 17th of December. And two interesting things Fred sees there. One, he sees Boer prisoners. You know, we mentioned in a previous one, the, the Boer boarding War. boarding of the troop ship, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, the, the, the British set up prisoner of war camps in other colonies, and one of the colonies that they set them up was Ceylon. So there were 5,000 Boer soldiers held there, and Fred sees the remnants being boarded onto ships and sent back to South Africa. So the war is over at this point, but the, the people haven't been repatriated yet. Wouldn't it be great? You could have done a recording of that to kind of bookend the, the uh, boarding of the troop ship, you know, the boarding of the, uh, of the prisoner of war ship. The defeated soldiers. The defeated soldiers. Yeah, 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 re- returning. Yeah. And he goes to Colombo and he, he, goes, he, he goes and does quite a lot of sightseeing. He, he, uh, he goes and sees the camp where the, the, the Boer soldiers have, are, are being held or have been held. He goes and sees a fishing village. He goes and sees temples and all sorts of things. But he, goes to, he leaves Colombo where the boat's uh, moored and then goes inland um, to Kandy, um, which I think is one of the venues of cricket test matches in Sri Lanka, if I remember it's, rightly. Yeah. Um, but on the on the um, train, he meets a guy called Sir Hector MacDonald, who is on his way to the governor. 
um, the governor of Ceylon, and Fred has uh, describes it to answer charges of moral delinquencies. So that's the only passing reference in his diaries. So I had to have a look at who Sir Hector MacDonald was. It turns out, really interesting bloke, he, he was a working-class crofter from Scotland who rose to the rank of Major General, purely on merit. Yeah. Massive fighting hero in, in Scotland. There it's are, a name that sounds, you know, Hector MacDonald. Hector MacDonald, you couldn't get more, you know, you, nothing under his kilt <laughs> that, when, when he goes to war, I'm pretty sure. There were apparently three or four statues to him in Scotland, you know, a real hero to, to the Scots. But his moral delinquencies... He's um, apparently get, he gets to Ceylon and, and, and takes over running the garrison, rubs a number of people up the wrong way. They're, they're a little bit, you know, the establishment, the colonial establishment looked down on him, but then they discover, or he's alleged to have been found, uh, involving himself with quite a lot of young chaps, young men, young boys. He's accused of, of homosexual practices which aren't illegal in Ceylon, so he can't be tried for them. But news gets back to uh, the governor. He gets sent back to England and then decides to come back to Ceylon to prove his innocence. But on the way back, the governor in um, Ceylon makes public these allegations and it gets into the press and on the way back he kills himself. So it's a really tragic little vignette. I've just just got him up here. He was was known as Fighting Mac. The Fighting Mac. Fighting Mac. He was the commander-in-chief of the British forces in in Ceylon. What a story. And in fact, um, he was such a hero, the Scots. There were various songs written about him. One of them was called The Fighting Mac. Um, But that's just a little bit of history that he's just brushed past on his way to um, the Far East. It's the Zelig, it's the Zelig thing it's, again, it's, isn't he's, it? He's, he's in the, the back of everything. So I, I guess once he, he leaves there, he then has to travel through the places that he'll actually come back and record in. So he goes to Penang next, he, le- he leaves Colombo on, on Sri Lanka, goes to Penang in Malaysia, Singapore. He just stays off on a day, or just changes boats in each of these, Hong Kong. He goes to Shanghai and uh, get, gets onto the uh, mainland China, has a little look round, but then gets a boat... To Nagasaki, to Nagasaki, which is where he where he lands, and he um, is, it, it says in mid January nineteen oh three um, slash early February that he arrives in Japan. Twelfth of January is the date that I've I've picked okay. up. Okay, yeah, he um, says he has to. He, he's waiting for the, all the gear to clear customs because we've got thirty cases of recording equipment here, haven't we? Yes, that's right. So Japan. I guess Japan traditionally was a difficult place to get things into, wasn't it? There were only certain trade ports that you could you could land and bring Western goods okay. into. And I guess they were really strict about what was brought into their, their country. There's, there's a lovely memory from his memoirs which describes him looking at the boat um, and down onto the docks when he first arrives in Nagasaki. And he says, the quaint novelty is to watch the little Japanese girls, he's obviously a 19th century chap, well, early 20th century, the little Japanese girls coal the steamers. These are all steamboats. They held the world record of seven and a half tons per minute. That's bringing coals onto a boat. Seven and a half tons per minute. These Japanese women, they form lines from the coal barge, where the coal was, was, was held, to the steamer's coal port, and pass from one another little baskets of coal with infinite rapidity. Each basket holds about one peck. Now, I thought one peck would be, we were talking about this earlier, yeah, like how a, big's a peck? peck of salt, but, yeah. but I think a peck of, um, as a sort of measurement, was like a, a bucket, a big bucket. Um, so there's a wonderful image of all these lines of Japanese women passing buckets of coal back and forth to fill this steamer. So he arrives, he arrives there... 
kind of, he's probably a bit exhausted, but quite keen to get on with recording. But there's a bit of a setback, isn't there, poor Fred? Monday the 19th of January, he receives a cable from his brother Will in London. Oh, gosh, yes. Um, um, telling him that his dad is dangerously ill and that Will uh, was heading to Washington, where they're from initially. And, and this shows that the distances that they are from home. So the, 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 it was dated... 29th of 12th. This cable so, arrives. It's been waiting for him 29th for three of December, weeks. Yeah. So Fred immediately cables back for news. And two days later, unfortunately, after passing two anxious days, he receives a reply that his father was dead. Which, you must, which is obviously awful anyway, but when you're thousands of miles from home, it must be dreadful. I cannot put into words, he said, my feelings. Words are too cold to express my sorrow at losing my good, loving parent. The immense distance which separates me and my family, places me in a trying position. So far, I've not received one letter giving details. Now, that must be the worst thing, not knowing. Not knowing anything. It's it's like hearing some terrible news and then having to wait. You know, now, you you call their mobile, and if you can't get through to them immediately, you have, you know, five minutes of real worry until you actually learn what's happened. There, it's two days. days. Well, then it says, the last letter received, I I think he means from his dad, was forwarded from Calcutta and dated Washington, D.C., November the 29th, 1902. So a month before his dad's so death. So two, two months before. Yeah. There's a lovely passage. I mean, apparently he just sits down and writes. That's his way of consoling himself. Sits in his hotel room and just writes it down. Do you want to read what he says about his dad? It's rather moving, and I think we could all probably relate to it. This is what he wrote. With his death has gone one of the dearest wishes of my heart. I should have loved to lay my life and work at the feet of him who has sacrificed and struggled so much for my sake. To see him retired, happy in our midst, to spend his declining years was my cherished hope. We had so often talked it over our ideal. We both leaned towards the country, the cottage, the farm, the vines, and so, where we could live a simple, natural life. My dear father, if we could only repay you for all you have suffered for us. Wow. Bless him. Bless him. Poor old Fred. I mean, fortunate, not fortunately, but um, as this was happening, it took it took about two weeks for all the recording gear to be released from customs so actually his morning came at a at a, at a not a good time but you know he, he had a lull in which to get over or at yeah least start, and, and, and to, a bit, start to mourn and get over this and a bit of a time to gather himself exactly yeah, so. and he, he says that life slowly began to creep forward in the following weeks once the recording equipment had been had been released yeah it seems to start recording it begins on the 4th of february 1902 Sorry, 1903. Oh, time's racing by. Um, and he begins recording and he makes 54 records that day, which is, is clearly a lot of later like energy. He's, yes, exactly. 54 in a day. But he's not, he's not terribly impressed with the music, is he? No, go on. It is, what his quote is, Japanese music is simply too terrible. <laughs> he's never, never shy to uh, get off the fence, is, is um, Fred. Yes, uh, Europeans who've been long in the country profess to really enjoy it and say that there is more in the music and acting than the casual observer would believe. He's not convinced, is he? Well, he's not convinced to start off initially, exactly. Yeah, but he he does. He does sort of turn around and they they record an awful lot of recordings here. They're recording onto two formats, so they've got um, ten inch, which which is the longer three minutes plus, and then seven inch, which is between two and a half well two to two and a half minutes i think and they, they do um 111 10 inch recordings while they're in japan and 165 7 inch so 276 recordings 
Um, on the 13th of February, he's beginning to mellow yes, a little. Yes, it seems to have, the Japanese music seems to have kind of got under his skin. Um, but, you know, he's going from country to country. Each country has its own traditions and its own very different way of, obviously, of... Um, well, different instruments, different way of playing instruments, different musical scales. To get his head around all these different cultures must be, must be tricky. So yeah, on two weeks after he starts recording, or ten days after he starts recording, he, he's beginning to quote, I'm beginning to like their music a little. Today we had a geisha band, and to see these little women, again, excuse the, yeah, this was then, to see these little women with, their, with the big European band instruments was the funniest thing imaginable. <laughs> Um, th- this band, this geisha band, played both Japanese and European instruments. I took a photograph of them. Um, he's slowly, yeah, he's slowly getting into it. Um, well, one of the strange things from this session, he says that over half the artists we have are blind men. Yes. Um, I'm not quite sure why that would be the case. Um, he describes they particularly um, play instruments. They, he describes two instruments, the koto, which is um, a harp-type instrument, and the samisan, samisan. which is um, a sort of banjo that's played with a piece of ivory. He's, the blind thing's interesting. I mean, why do you think that could be? I guess blind people have to make a living. Um, and maybe that... You know, we're assuming that blind people are beggars and that they're sort of outcast and they sit on their... Sits on the street playing playing music. Is that... Maybe beggar's too strong a word for it, but you know, it's it's a sort of a skill you can have. You can learn to play an instrument when you're blind, yeah. and you can sit down, maybe put a hat out, collect some money, and, and live from it. Yeah. So maybe that's the reason. I, I don't because I, it was te- it's teachers as well as musicians tend to be blind. Was that what you were saying? Oh, that's what it says in his oh. story. I mean, perhaps. You know, they say if you if, if you can't see, your sense of hearing is stronger. Stronger. Maybe yeah, they've yeah. got more, they're, they're, they're better musicians. I mean, could be. Yeah. No distractions. He also slightly falls in love with the craftsmanship of the instruments. He says um, some of the instruments were treasures of workmanship, with a gold and lacquer or ornamentation. I mean, this is quite a refined thing for him to kind of get into, and he's slowly doing it, isn't he? We've got a recording of the imperial band that he records the emperor's band from mm. 1903 which he made it on the 28th of 28th february, of february. so that's day. that's three weeks after he started recording basically yeah. he said they were weird and fascinating indeed the orchestra was composed of 12 men and their music shall we have a listen he says yes. they played 10 pieces and it was impossible to distinguish one tune from the other i think it's really it sounds really interesting yeah and again different Japanese imperial band from 116 years ago. I mean, I think it's fair to say that our notions of melody and harmony are pretty much uh, absent from that. Yeah, um, and, and it must be, you know, it must have been um, such a change to to 
European music, if you've not experienced that sort yeah. of thing before, you know, we've got access to the world's recordings now. Yeah. And we've all heard a bit of Japanese music and Indian music and... It's still going. Yeah, it's still going. It's just... And it's very... I mean, if you put a sort of um, skittery beat behind that, it could be sort of um, minimalist, sort of uh, fortetti type techno or... or, or yeah. um, I mean, it's, it's certainly interesting. Well, you, you know, you've had flavours of that. The band Japan and David Sylvian used yes. those kind of instruments and, and those kind of beats. But um, you can see why, if you've, if you've only got three or three and a half minutes, as it was with a 10 inch, was it? 10 inch. You kind of want to get to the, get to the hook, yeah. whereas it just doesn't happen. It doesn't work like that. Don't but bore us, not, get to the chorus. Get to the chorus. Yeah. But I suppose he's not recording for himself, is he? That's the thing we've got to remember. He's recording for the Japanese market. Yeah, and that's, I think that's where he's brilliant because he's always thinking what will work in this market. Yeah. Um, he's, um, he says in all he recorded 600, uh, 600 titles covering every variety of national music and it became the nucleus, nucleus of what was to grow into a very large Japanese catalogue. So apparently they quite quickly started loving the gramophone, which must have been very gratifying for him. Yeah, it took off. In fact... Later on, when he's in China, he says beyond the, the, the kind of the main cities, it didn't. It didn't in China. The gramophone didn't travel. Yeah. Um, but Japan, it, it really did sort of cap, capture the um, fashion of the time. So, so he kind of leaves Japan, doesn't he? That that's almost well, not his last before. Rec- not uh-huh. before experiencing a bit of Japanese culture. Oh, that's right. This is the his, um, the, the play, his his diaries give a fascinating insight just into into sort of cultural life out there. He immerses himself, and this is this is why his diaries are so brilliant. He immerses himself in whatever local malls and and, and, and entertainment there is. So in Japan, in Tokyo, they go to a play, but he says the play lasts for twelve hours, ten a.m. to ten p.m. Um, but they go and they sit in this theatre and they, they they squat down in a in a Japanese fashion, as he says, in a in a box and watches this entire play, which which lasts from ten a.m. to ten p.m. During the intervals, they go and eat in a tea house next door because they're such a long it's such a long day. But even in the intervals, uh, there's a play within a play to keep people once they've had their food entertained. I mean, to me, it sounds a bit draining, frankly. It does. But... I, <laughs> um, I went to see. The... The Royal Shakespeare Company did, or they've got a production that they bring back periodically of Nicholas Nickleby, which yeah. is, I think, seven or eight hours long, and you watch sort of three to four hours, then you have a break, and then you, in the evening you watch three to four hours. By the end of that, you're exhausted, but, but this is an extra sort of three or four this hours is, on top of is, that. Um, in a foreign language, in a foreign language without oh, well, understanding what's going on. Different languages. Yeah. There is music all through the dialogue, and three different bands are required. One for dancing, one for dialogues, and one for the interpreting of thoughts and emotions. The latter is done by a man chanting, accompanied by a shamisen. The pathetic scenes are dragged out to fearful lengths in order, in order to give the women in the audience plenty of chance to cry. Oh, so it's a really emotional I mean, this, it thing. sounds, you're yeah. through the ringer, 12 hours of, yeah. I mean, fascinating really, but yeah. Maybe we're too used to things being short and concise in this. Uh, the emotional acting was excellent. And then after the play... Um, they go for a meal because I think they're you know stretch the legs this is where they meet the the geisha girls the geisha girls so they him and I don't know who he's with actually well I'm presuming he's with um, George Dillner who's there he may well be with the Addises with the Addises Um, so they go to to a restaurant for dinner after this long play we had enormous appetites we took off our boots 
and went to a pretty little room and sat on the floor. And then he lists the food they have. Fish and vegetables, raw fish, little raw minnows, fish hash. You know, this is proper Japanese. It's croquettes of game, as well as chestnuts and apple sauce. Sounds lovely. It sounds, it sounds, it sounds, but then he says this, and, and, and sake and fish chowder and lager beer. Yeah. He then says, we could not eat three mouthfuls. And so after all this great spread, we had to order a few European sandwiches. Which is a little bit, come on, Fred. It sounds like he's often a bit iffy about people's he's food. He's a bit iffy, but he goes to great lengths yeah. to describe it. This, what, what would be right in my street, that sort of food. And I then says, sort of food, we cannot eat three mouthfuls. Anyway, yes, come on. Um, but they're, jo- they're joined in the meal by four geisha girls who sang and danced for us and amused us generally. A geisha is assigned to each guest and she literally feeds him and adds generally to the conviviality. I Although, bet she does. I bet she does. Although these guys, she's a ladies after a fashion and cannot be approached too boldly, when I went to the toilet, I was followed by two of them, each with a small dipper full of water ready to pour over my hands to wash them. <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> that's service. That really is service. So um, anyway, that's a digression, but that's a, a day in the cultural life of a, of a recording pioneer on the road, isn't it? It, it, it is brilliant that what he gets up to, and, and, and it's wonderful that he records so much of this stuff, both in his diaries that, we, that we're proud of having back at the EMI Archive Trust, yeah. uh, our archives, but also in his memoirs. Um, and, and he wrote two or three books um, about his life recording. And they're just fantastic stories. And before we move on to China, there's one more thing in, 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 um, in Japan. They're called some male singers who are favourites of the emperor who apparently the only kind of music sang the only kind of music that the emperor liked. I don't know who the emperor was at that point, forgive me. They do a kind of impassioned declaiming, using the full power of the voice and going from the lowest pitch to the highest. The volume they produce is tremendous. I'm reading from his diaries here. And before starting, they wrap their torsos many times in a broad band very tightly around their abdomen. I'm not sure why on earth they do that. Do they... Unwrap it as they sing to make when their voice deeper. It goes deeper make, the more you unwrap or it. Or higher. They start at the bottom. Does it make them go higher? Yeah. They use no accompaniments. Unfortunately to Fred, to me, uh, it sounded like a braying donkey. <laughs> so again, you, you think you're getting there with some yeah. cultural appreciation and then. But, but Japanese society is very ritualized. It is very you know, the, the, the geishas, there's the tea ceremony. And the it? crying in the theatre. And the crying in the theatre. And I wonder if this was another example of, you know, binding the singers was, was a kind of form of ritual that yeah. maybe didn't impact the performance, but, yeah. but, but meant something um, culturally. What a time, though. I mean, there's, there's, there's a picture of him in a kimono, which is just of course there quite is. amusing. Well, he, he wore the Japanese outfit, didn't he, on, on, when he first arrives in India and he's waiting to go yes. into Calcutta yes. and he, he dresses as a Japanese person. Which, in yeah. my head, I, I assume he was cross-dressing. I don't know why. I've got, uh, well, I think that thought. might be you, but... but uh, there you go. Um, so, we leave Japan. Yeah. What happens next? So, the, the, it's the end of February, he's finished recording. The beginning of March, they, they have to wait a little bit for a boat, and then they get a boat to Shanghai. They go back to Shanghai, and this time they're recording. Um, I think there's a really nice description of the streets of Shanghai, yes. which again shows Fred's interest and delight in being travelling, but also his, his ability to turn his nose up at the yes. grimier sides of it's life. It's kind of wide-eyed yeah. sort of amazement and joy mixed with... Kind of American cleanliness, American meeting, cleanliness. Me, me, meeting the Far East, which maybe isn't quite so clean at this point. 
So he cannot believe those narrow lanes are main streets and thoroughfares and not alleys. They're scarcely five feet wide, their roofs nearly touching each other and nearly excluding the daylight. Artisans working right in the roadway. No means of transit except to walk or a palakin carried by two coolies. Dense crowds of busy men crying coolies, bumping into you with their long poles. Sickening beggars holding before you horrible deformities, vile smells of every rottenness from refuse heaps in the road or a filthy sewer. Welcome to Shanghai. Welcome to Shanghai. I mean, that's a pretty vivid um, description, isn't it? Yeah, and but he cuts straight to the chase. They, they arrive in the on the fifteenth of March, and on, they're recording by the eighteenth. And they're recording they? by the eighteenth. Sixteenth, they meet up with a guy who calls himself George Jailing, J J A I L I N G Jailing, or as as Fred calls him, he's, he's also known as Xing Chong of Hunan Road. Yes, exactly. So he's a Chinese guy, I think, George Jailing, and he is hired to be their go-between with with the, the Chinese artists. They um. So yes, on the 18th, they make their first records. Yeah. 15 Chinamen had come, as he says, including a band to accompany them. As the Chinaman yells at the top of his power when he sings, he can only sing two songs an evening, then his throat is hoarse. <laughs> so progress must be... Um, their idea of music is a tremendous clash and bang. With the assistance of a drum, three pairs of huge gongs, a pair of slappers, a sort of banjo, a squacky fiddle of bamboo. Isn't that lovely? A squacky fiddle. Yeah and some bagpipe-sounding instruments, besides the yelling of the singer, their idea of music was recorded uh, on the gramophone. On the first day after making ten records, we have to stop. The din had so paralysed my wits that I could not think. I, I think that's, that's lovely. That he, It's just so noisy and not what he's expecting or used well, also to. Also, compared to the Japanese music, which, as we heard, was a little more um, sedate, I mm. think, wasn't it? Mm. Um, yes, but, I, you know, just that description... It's, it's phenomenal. You can almost hear the music in the words, can't you? I, I, lo- I love... He also has a description of the hotel. So they, they, as they typically do, they find a room in a hotel, set up their recording equipment, they find a local fixer, in this case George Daling, and he brings the artists in. But in this particular hotel, he says, it's a Chinese hotel that serves European food. <laughs> he says, by accident, I wandered into the kitchen of this um, hotel, and the dirt and smells which greeted me put me off ever attempting to have meals there. So you can imagine this sort of grubby kitchen. Well, I don't know where else he's yeah. doing it from what he says. He, um, he says, as with the Japanese, there's no romance or love sentiment in the singing. Mm. So it's quite cold, he thinks. Their sentimental songs would be about the death of a parent or grandparent or some other, some other ancestor. Yeah, ancestral songs son. rather than romantic yes, songs. Yes, yeah. which is quite interesting. He does say, again, another lovely description, outside the hotel in Shanghai... Uh, the streets used for funerals. And he has this wonderful description. I won't read it all, but the, uh, of the mourners and, 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 and the noise and the coffins and the funeral processions. Um, He's looking down it, on yeah, it. Yes, looking down on it. hotel room, I think. Yeah. Um, with mounted soldiers, banners, umbrellas, pigs roasted whole being carried down the street. I mean, it sounds very vivid, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, it's real, again, another cultural kind of collision. Not, you wouldn't see that down Oxford Street. But um, also, this is, you imagine most people of that era when they travelled. They did the kind of, you know, around Europe or whatever, they did the Grand Tour. Yeah. And in, in Asia, they, they only did the kind of, you know... Raffles Hotel. Yes, or, um, or, 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 or the, the Taj Mahal and then back to the, you know, extraordinary, really. Well, I think, you know, we, we've, we've seen Fred when he gets to India that a lot of the colonials, the, you know, the English um, people who were over there keep themselves in a bubble. Yeah. And Fred 
constantly bursts the bubble and goes out and has a look at what, what's going around. And I guess he needs to do that to find, to find genuine it. local artists. I mean, he does say that he... he although he... he he says it's a lovely din. That's how he describes it in China. So it wasn't he, his ears weren't. He, you know, he can't have been that uh, that against it. I think he warms up as he gets he gets his ear in. So the, the, again, three hundred and twenty-seven records recorded in Shanghai. That's pretty good going. In what looks like a, a few weeks, they even a few days to be honest, um, because they then have another dawdle while they wait for a boat to take them to Hong Kong. And in fact, it's our old friend the Chuzan comes back they go they go into various ah. boats but shuzan is is back in back in town and over to hong kong yeah and the, the, his memorable thing on this this journey was the whole journey he says between shanghai and hong kong the ship's whistle was blowing because the um the the the, the sea was so foggy was so foggy um and they were they were in danger of running into little boats that oh, were there's so many junks fishing junks trading yeah. junks yeah. yes so they arrive in hong kong on the 23rd of april 1903 and bear in mind he's been on the road now since September, September 1902 so about 7-8 seven, seven, months in he says that, so they made some 35 records in Hong Kong uh, the artists were of a lower grade and dirtier than those in Shanghai and the song's not nearly so interesting it's funny he's got this slightly kind of um, uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for um, as soon as he leaves the country, it's suddenly not quite as bad as... Rose-tinted spectacles in retrospect. Exactly. He's got this kind of rose-tinted yeah. look back on the countries he's just left. And you get the impression the countries he arrives in are never quite as good. But I always find it's the first day on a holiday you arrive and you go, oh, it's not as good as you thought it was going to be. <laughs> yes. And when you leave the holiday, you've obviously had a good time and think, God, that was a really good holiday. And maybe there's a little bit of that. You arrive, you've not quite got your bearings, you're a little bit tired... It's all not as good as you thought. Yes. It's going to be hard work here. Feeling, and then when he's gone, he's got three hundred and twenty-seven recordings. They're on the way back to Hanover to be pressed. I've succeeded in China. It's Wasn't a, China a great place? Yeah, wasn't it brilliant? <laughs> I love that din. Um, but so in Hong Kong, he sets up in a hotel, and the artists are principally tea house girls. And there's another description again of its time. Their bound feet, these tea house girls, their bound feet made it impossible for them to walk. So they were carried to our improvised studio on the shoulders of giant coolies. I mean, that's a pretty potent image, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, find, I find it... It makes me feel a little bit icky, yeah, the yeah. idea of bound feet. I know, really. You, uh, you can't even walk, your feet are so painful. Uh, these girls were, were... It's a very, very weird, brilliant description. These girls were lacquered and painted and dressed in embroidered silks and looked like expensive doll babies. Mm. I mean, you can visualise it, can't you? Mm. I have reason to remember, and remember he wrote these diaries a few years after the event. Yes, yeah, so these were written in the 40s. In the 40s, looking back. I have reason to remember their long and uh, coloured fingernails. Their voices have the sound of a small cat wailing. Right? Yeah. And, while, and, while, and while I was attempting to push one singer closer to the horn, to the recording horn, she turned on me like a viper. Yeah. So these very sedate... Don't touch. Yeah, do not touch. Yeah. Um, no touch. At the same time, the big coolies also attacked me. Evidently I, as a foreigner, in touching the lady, had committed a faux pas. After that, I was more discreet in dealing with the tea house girls. So, well, I, but I, I've just been out in Japan, and, and that was one of the things we were told when we went to a, a tea house. We said, Dave you, went to the Rugby World Cup, by the way. He's being, he's being slightly... Uh, Yes. I'm trying to pretend I'm cultural. Yeah, I, I, it was the only day I drank tea, but um, the rest of the days we were—it wasn't tea we were drinking. Um, but we did have tea, and we were told absolutely on no way touch, physically touch any of the uh, the girls that are, that are serving you. It's 
completely ritualized if you touch you've broken a big taboo so fred has done fred is. something very similar there now this is that we found a recording from from hong kong um this is a few years later and it's a slightly weird one in that it doesn't really sound chinese at all it's a person called um t s sorry g u su spelt h s u i think su's my best guess yeah yeah and this is what it is it's it's a man reading the english sound table basically the alphabet e e f g h i j k l you get the <laughs> you get the picture um Quite an extraordinary thing to do in Hong Kong, isn't it? He sounds Cockney anyway. Yeah, I wonder who... Was that for selling to schools? I don't or, know. You know, interesting. But all sorts of things are being tried out on these... You thought it would be received pronunciation devices. if it was to teach yeah. in schools. It would be... Um, anyway, so that, that, that was from Hong Kong from a, a later uh, recording trip, uh, trip. Unfortunately, nothing from the Tea House Girls. We couldn't find anything. So the, the, this trip, it is literally a lightning visit. On, on Thursday, he records 35... Um, sides. That's Thursday, the twenty third of April. Friday, just forty five sides. Saturday is forty five sides. Sunday, just twenty sides. Packs his bags, gets on a uh, gets on a boat, and travels to Singapore. Singapore next. He's recorded one hundred and forty five sides in four days. That's incredible. And there's this wonderful picture of him and George Dilnert recruiting artists in in the Far East. But they're in their pith helmets. I mean, they're literally Victorian explorers or Edwardian explorers in their pith helmets and car keys, on their haunches, talking to native women, selling um, trinkets on a carpet, and trying to convince them to record it. I mean, it really is of its time, but it's an incredible photo, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, no, I've, I've got it in front yeah. of me. It's, it's, the, women, the women have all got, um, you know, they're all covered, their heads are covered um, with a wrap that's kind of over their shoulders, and their trinkets are out for sale in front of them. And he does, he looks like... Um, Paspatu, was it, from, um, yes. what's that, Around the World in 80 Days? That, yeah. that, it's that kind of look. And you, you get the sense he quite wants to get, he quite wants to get home now. Well, um, you, you just notice it from the diary entries. So Japan, India's got loads, Japan's got loads, um, Hong Kong's uh, um, got a bit, and it starts ebbing away at this point. So he, he cables back to London to say, look, to ask for money and instructions. Yeah, this and they, is after they finished in Singapore. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So this is after Singapore. Yeah. Um, they cable back to say that George Dilnert, so his young assistant, um, should go home. He's recalled because there was not enough to do. There's not enough work uh, to keep him out there. Yeah, which that is a bit unfair, isn't it? Yeah, just for the company of it's having a, traveling into unknown places. I know. But actually, they do have some company because the Addises are the still Addises there. are still there. <laughs> they're still traveling with them. I, I, do you think they're on a freebie? What? They just know that this is. Yeah. A, Fred says, so after Dilnert leaves, he has to unload the gear himself. I literally had to do it myself and set up the plant. Which, A, again, been unfair, but the amount of work, 30 cases of recording equipment. Yeah. This is dangerous stuff, isn't it? And to do it himself, um, I can see why he's a little bit pissed off, really. So he, he, he basically, in the next few weeks, is jumping from place to place. So he, he leaves Hong Kong, goes to Singapore, makes 312 recordings in Singapore. Then he gets a boat to... Bangkok. Yeah. Um, and this is where he goes on his own, we think. We're not sure if the Addises are with him or not. I think they may still be with him, but that's where he has to unload the, the boat on his own. A quick 95 recordings. Just 95. Then he has to go back to Singapore to get a boat that will take him to Rangoon in Burma, which is now Myanmar. 
where he does another 157 recordings. There's this wonderful nugget in his diary. He uses this phrase, um, he says, I soldered the tins of the master discs. So basically, they, they have the master recordings, and to stop them getting scratched or damaged, they put them in bigger tins ah. and, and with a soldering iron. To stop customs people opening them, well, I would possibly, say. but also and, to protect them. Yeah, yeah. But even the, 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 the effort and the energy and the equipment on the other side of the world required to do that, it's extraordinary, isn't it? yeah. I mean, soldering the tins. Hence, they've got thirty case, massive packing cases full of stuff. And these 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 zinc masters are heavy and big, so to have a hundred of them to ship back to Hanover, it was, wasn't it, to, to be pressed up? Yes. All I the, mean, hell, you know, the logistics are extraordinary. Really are. Now, a small tragedy um, happens on the way between on another Singapore and Burma. Yeah, he, he um, they hit a monsoon um, and and and. They actually lose one one man overboard in a bad squall. That's the twentieth of June. You sense, as we said before, Fred is really coming to the end of his enthusiasm for this trip because yeah. it warrants only one line. Um, and when he gets to Burma, he, he only mentions a couple of things. They they make one hundred and fifty seven recordings while they're there, and he says there was a charm about the people. The country and its music that made a strong appeal to me. Compared to the anemic music of India, it had vigor and color. Ah, so he's not re—he's not—he's he, not re-rationalizing India there. He's no. not suddenly saying India was wonderful. But it, but he once. seems to have, have, have liked um, Burma from the moment he, he gets there. But not enough to record any social events or explorations. And, and I, I wonder if he's just doing the work and then and then just well, let's get, get home. home. I've been he's... away almost a year at this point. So he. There's a band, he says, that's composed of bells and mellow-sounding scales. I mean, it does sound rather lovely, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and the percussion instruments consisting of pieces of bamboo struck with a hammer. It sounds very nice. So, he, yeah, he wants to get back. It's been almost a year, hasn't it? And he sort of sums up his trip. And remember, this trip took in... He, he left on the 28th of September to 1902. 1902. And he ultimately gets back to London... On the 5th of August. 1903. Yeah. So, yes, to China, according to um, the uh, University of Illinois Press, uh, China, they made 476 recordings on this trip. Japan, 276. In those two countries alone. So reflecting on this epic voyage, he says, um, everywhere, talking about the gramophone, everywhere the invention aroused the greatest interest. Uh, The native and European press interviewed us and printed many columns about this amazing expedition. In my spare time, I gave dozens of gramophone recitals to audiences who'd heard recorded music, who were hearing recorded music for the first time. My selection of European records, which he took with him, was worn to the bone before I returned to London in the autumn of 1903. That's fantastic. So it's not just going out and capturing recordings. It's also a sort of evangelicism, isn't it? He's planting seeds, isn't he? He's saying, listen to this, this is fantastic. He's planting seeds, flags, whatever you want to call them, just introducing... And I mean, how many hundreds, thousands of people over the course of a year, if you'd done a grant, would just gather around and, and watch? And you would never forget that if you no. saw that for the first time, would you? This crazy white guy yeah, uh, just... with his moustache and <laughs> his little friend, and they're putting records on. And... But also this almost, I, I imagine him with this sort of P.T. Barn, Barnum kind of showmanship uh, vibe to him, you know, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, you know, and actually selling in a quite an eccentric way this... Yeah, you contract up. When, when, when they were travelling to Russia and they were stopping off at train, every yes. time the train stopped, they got off and called a crowd up. Yeah, in the they snow. Mu- in the, yeah, yeah. And Fred, you know, Fred comes from a performance background, doesn't he? he piano, and, yeah. and he's clearly a flirt and an, an energetic ball of, energy, of 
dynamism. Yes, I can see him doing that. So he gets home, as we said, 5th of August, and um, the world has changed slightly, hasn't it? Yeah, there's, there's a few bits and bobs. What, one interesting thing was they've, they, they had a set, they, originally it was 7-inch recording discs, Yeah. then it went to 10-inch, and that's added some time. There was a new 12-inch disc when wow. they got back, so Huge. maybe four minutes of recording could be happening on, um, on there, more than four minutes, in fact. His brother's also there to meet him. His brother meets him at Waterloo Station with some friends, and guess what they do? They go for a nice dinner at the Trocadero. Oh, which was where they first which arrived in London. First, exactly, and then yeah. go to a music hall. Of course they do. And Will, his brother, has actually grown up in this time. He, he came, came over late, two, three years after Fred to the UK, and, and was quite a junior recording guy. Went with Fred to record um, the Castrato yeah. in, in, uh, and Caruso in Italy. But he's gone off and done trips on his own. He's done most of the recording at the new recording studio, which is upstairs in the City Road the offices. City Road, much bigger. Much which bigger. opened in 1902. So they've got new offices. His brother's grown up. Which new 12-inch prop- disc. Yeah. New 12-inch disc. I, I wonder, what's the friction between him and his brother? He'd been the star. And, well, um, he sort of he, he took him under his wing, and now Will is, Will is kind of emerged. So a year on his own. Being, exactly. So he's, he's now more unequal, yeah. which I suspect would uh, cause a little bit of tension, which we might examine in the next episode. Yeah, but that's it. What a trip. Yeah. A whole year, for, well, 11 months of travel um, to come back with, well... Hundreds, I mean hundreds if not thousands. I've, over. Yeah, I've got a list of all of them that they record in. It was 1,864 recordings in that, in that year, Incredible. including the Indian ones. And uh, completely, completely pioneering, completely new technology in place in the world. I've never seen it. Yeah. What a thing. Amazing. What an amazing trip. Isn't it? And on that note, we finish. See ya. The Sound of the Hound was edited by Andy Hetherington. For more details on the topics discussed in this episode, visit soundofthehound.com or follow us on Twitter on at the sound of the H1 or on Instagram on the sound of the hound.